Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Shalom, friends. It's a pleasure to be here with Rabbi Dr. Joel Hecker, who is Professor of Jewish Mysticism at the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College. He's the author of Volumes 11 and 12 of the Zohar, Pritzker Edition, the first complete scholarly translation and commentary of the Zohar, the canonical text of Jewish mysticism. Rev. Joel, thank you so much for taking time. I'm delighted. Pleasure to be here. I'm sorry I can't be there in person, but um, that's, <laughs> one day, that's, how one day uh, that's how we're working these days. <laughs> so to jump right in here, how, how might studying the Zohar enrich our understanding of the Jewish tradition and even more broadly of our moral lives? Okay, so um, the, the Zohar and the Kabbalistic tradition in general reflects the deepest yearnings of people to connect with God. Uh, what the mystics, and this goes cross-culturally, uh, are seeking a certain kind of intoxication with divinity, a sense of being imbued with a fullness of, of divinity and of holiness. And um, there's a way in which the, what the Kabbalists were trying to get at was something that was deeper, that was more profound, that touched people uh, in their inward core, innermost core, in a way that uh, the simple obser observance of halakha and of ritual might not satisfy. If I could say one more thing about it, it would be that there's a certain kind of omni-significance that the Kabbalists are aiming for, where every single detail of Torah, every single detail of ritual is an opportunity to connect with God. And part of, one of the people who picked up on this the most was Martin Buber, who coined the term pan-sacramentalism, talked about how at every turn, at every single Jewish thing that we do, there's an opportunity for a sacrament, for an intimate and powerful, uh, sometimes overwhelming interaction with divinity. Amazing. So obviously as an intellectual quest, it, it's, it's worthy in its own right, but how might we apply Kabbalistic and, and more particularly Zoharic rituals to our daily lives where we're doing mundane practices like eating. So when I first got into this, I had just finished rabbinical school and uh, Jewish practice and um, uh, the way in which we uh, observe our Judaism was, uh, was uppermost in my mind. And I chose a dissertation topic and ultimately a topic for my first book, working, writing about eating, because I wanted to know how will um, uh, how can Kabbalah change our, our daily lives, not just our ritual lives? And what Kabbalah tries to do is it tries to raise our consciousness. It tries to give us a sense of how God's being animates all of existence. So as one example, in the, the Mishnah in Pirkei Avot, chapter 3, Mishnah 3, speaks about two different tables. 
that there's one can be sitting at a table in which one is talking about words of Torah uh, or not. And the table that in which one is sitting uh, and exchanging the great Torah, words of Torah is a table that befits uh, being presented before God. It's like an altar. And the other is the one without uh, any kind of talk of holiness or any kind of talk of uh, raising oneself morally or spiritually is considered to be a, a table full of vomit and filth. So in the Mishnah, in the rabbinic imagination, these are two different opportunities. Whereas for the Kabbalists, the table that we're sitting in front of is inherently symbolic of Shekhinah. It's inherently symbolic of that aspect of divinity that's closest to us. So that it means that something as mundane as just a table becomes a portal to divinity. That it's not merely, it's not just an opportunity to be doing something holy, but there's a, uh, it's as if there is a living entity that is in the table, that God, God, God's own self in some sense is inherent there, and we can either interact with that godliness in a, um, in a vibrant and uh, holy and uplifting way, or in a way that demeans ourselves. Yeah. Um, so if, uh, if you'd like, I can say a little bit more, is that in, in the Kabbalah of the Zohar, every single mitzvah that we do serves as a chariot. So that whether we're putting on a tefillin in the morning on our arm and our head, or we're putting on a talit, or we're just talking to a friend, and, and it's, we're just taught using our, our, our tongue and our teeth and, uh, and our breath. So are we doing it to, exchange, to uh, share words of kindness? Are we saying things that are going to uplift and that are going to enhance our relationship? Are, or are we being demeaning, either to the other, or are we speaking gossip about somebody? In that case, our mouth can be used as, can become a chariot. So um, what everything then is viewed as an opportunity for a fusion of the godliness that is potentially there. And one step more that's required is not just to recognize the divinity that's imminent, that is latent, that is potentially there, but also with divinity that is transcendent, that ultimately we can't necessarily understand. And it's holding on to both of those both an aspect of divinity that we can feel or we can see, and that which we can't, a mystery that defies our understanding, that ultimately is the core of Kabbalah. Mm -hmm. So someone wants to experiment. They've never engaged with this before. What is something they can experiment with? They want to take a new perspective, a new practice. This is new to them. How might, how might someone begin in their daily life? So for in the, the Kabbalah of the Zohar, which is very focused on, uh, on traditional Jewish ritual, there are thousands of examples that I can give. So let me give, uh, let me give one, uh, or start with one at any rate, is people that are even cursorily familiar with a prayer book or with a, a, uh, the booklet that one uses for the grace after meals, may be familiar with the abbreviation that is used for God's name, a yud and a yud. What are those two yuds? You can't pronounce them. Or if you did pronounce them, it would say yud, yeah, it doesn't mean anything. Where do these two things come from? 
where they come from is it's taking the letters yud, hey, vav, and hey, the tetragrammaton, the unpronounceable name of God, and interleaving them with the letters aleph, dalad, nun, and yud, which is the name uh, which is we pronounce as Adonai. And so, and what we do is, in effect, every time that we see God's name, we're trying to say that which can't be spoken. And so we say that which can be spoken, the name Adonai, and so we take these two names, the Yud and the He and the Vav and the He, interleave them with the Aleph and the Dalad and the Nun and the Yud. Now we have an eight-letter name. We certainly don't try and say an eight-letter name. What we do is we take the Yud at the beginning, the Yud at the end, and we just leave those two. And so what we've done is we've contracted the fusion or the merger of that which we can approach in God's being and that which we can't. That which is imminent, that which we can see, that which we feel, that which we aspire to, and that which ultimately is going to be a mystery. And so every single time that we say a blessing, every single time that we, that we engage in an act of prayer and we try to speak that which can't be spoken and yet we say something, we're engaged in a fusion of our realm down here and God's realm up above. How can we merge? Um, was there something else you wanted to add there, or was it? Were you done? Oh, I could go on for an hour here. So uh, <laughs> you tell me when to stop. Okay. How how can we merge the spiritual and the ethical? But but I have a particular question with that, which is to say, if we see the godliness of the other, um, in some ways the godliness becomes the end. The other becomes the vehicle towards. Uh, the Shekhinah or towards the divine manifestation. Um, but in a Buber fashion or in a Kantian fashion, the other should be the ends in themselves. So who is the ends? Is it God as the ends? Is it the other individual human being as the ends? And how do the spiritual and ethical intersect in such a, a human interaction? So that's a, that's a great question. The, um, one of the dilemmas that uh, Jewish philosophy and Jewish theology have faced through the ages is that as soon as you put halacha next to some kind of philosophy or some kind of theology, very, and we start to talk about means and ends, as halacha is means to an ends, very often the ends can, can outshine, can overshadow uh, the means. And one of the great successes of Kabbalah is that it treated those means, those ritual aspects, as necessary means, is that the only way in which you could get to a certain kind of moral understanding and spiritual understanding was through the particularities of uh, the rituals as are stated in, uh, in the Torah and Talmud and works of halakha. The, um, <coughs> one of the, uh, I'm going to answer your question uh, a little bit by indirection, by saying that when I first went through the Zohar 20-something uh, years ago, really close to 30-something, close to about 30 years ago, I was studying for about four hours a day in my apartment in New York on the Upper West Side. And at the end of my four hours, I would go for a walk in Riverside Park. And after four hours of intense study, I would go out into the park and everything was transformed. The birds, the sky, and even the people. And one of the things that I noticed when I was 
when I would walk around, it was as if the tetragrammaton, the four-letter name of God, was imprinted upon other people's faces. It was startling, and yet it was, there was a way in which that presence was shining through as a direct result of the, the teachings of uh, the Zohar and the Kabbalah. So I think that the way in which Kabbalah can have an impact on people's moral lives and spiritual lives is by pushing them, uh, pushing us, to attend more deeply to, uh, to the reality of the other, to the reality of the other person, and recognizing uh, the divinity that is latent within them, mm. and um, uh, uh, that, uh, that that is the surest route by, by not, not looking at other people and at the world in instrumentalist ways, but rather as essential vehicles, as essential gateways to encounters with divinity. So uh, a question of, of reflection on your academic work. Uh, what were some of the greatest challenges in communicating the richness and complexity of the Zohar uh, to an English-speaking audience in your translation of the Zohar? And is a lot lost in that, or do you think it can be captured? That's a, that's a great question. So the rabbis uh, had a couple of uh, very harsh things to say about translation. Yeah. In, the tra in the Tanaitic tractate Sofrim, chapter one, number seven, uh, it says that the day that King Ptolemy had the, had the Torah translated was as bad for the Jews as the day the golden calf was created. Um, and in the Talmud in Kedushin, the name of Rabbi Yehuda says that one who translates a verse literally is a liar. And one who adds to the accepted translation is a blasphemer. So th those were the th those were sort of the starting points that I had to you know that I had to begin with were these cautions. Uh, and um, let me say you know uh, quote uh, the German theologian Friedrich Schleiermacher, uh, who lived eight, late eighteenth early nineteenth century, who observed that either the translator leaves the author in peace as much as possible and moves the reader towards him, or leaves the reader in peace as much as possible, and moves the author towards them. With a, a book such as the Zohar, where the vocabulary is no more than a few thousand words, and remember that the average person, the average American who has a graduate education has about somewhere between 50 and 75,000 words in their vocabulary. Okay, compared to say 3,000 in the Zohar, on the one hand, it's a fantastic opportunity. English is an extraordinarily rich language compared to the Zohar. On the other hand, the Zohar is written in a Semitic Aramaic where words are always elusive. Is one word connotes another term, which connotes another term. And so you've got two very different kinds of animals in, in these two different languages. So part of what we were trying to do, and here I follow Danny Matt's uh, model uh, very much and, uh, and, and his mentorship, is on the one hand, we wanted it to be readable. On the other hand, we wanted to retain some of the strangeness, some of the mystery that would, uh, that would draw people in, that would make people every once in a while scratch their head, heads, not because the English couldn't be understood, but because the concepts were deep and the concepts were difficult. Um, and in this way, we were following Buber and Rosenzweig to some extent, who wanted to retain some of the strangeness of 
uh, the biblical Hebrew when they translated the Torah into German. They wanted to both reorient their readers and disorient their readers. Um, the, uh, and so were there things that, that were lost? Of course there were. I opened up my review of, of Danny Matt's first two volumes. Uh, this is, this now goes back 20 something years with the following sentence. Katpira, Kasira, Kirta, Kuspita, Kustra. And those are just the cues. In other words, here, we are so unfamiliar in English with words that begin with Q. And here was a whole long list of them that Danny had been providing in his translation. All of these were neologisms. What do you do with a neologism when you're trying to translate a work? Are you gonna create your own words? So we didn't create our own words. Instead, what we did is we would explain it in the notes. And so of course the notes were one way to compensate. Another way to compensate was through providing alliteration where it didn't exist because the Zohar has alliteration in places where it couldn't be translated. So um, are things lost? Certainly. Were things gained? I certainly hope so and do believe so. Yeah, amazing. Okay, just the last question for you today and then to be continued. Um, and it's almost an absurd question when you've studied so much Zohar, but if you were to pick out just one, one of your favorite teachings from the Zohar, something you can share from us, something that walks with you each day or that you come back to periodically, what would that be? One of the, um, the texts that has always been challenging to interpreters in the biblical canon has been the Song of Songs. The Song of Songs is, at first glance, a, is, a, is a series of love poems between a male and a female lover. And they, they you know, pursue each other, sometimes they find each other, they describe each other's bodies in, in erotic uh, and beautiful poetic terms. And yet almost from the very beginning, this, this, series, this song cycle was interpreted in terms of a relationship between God and the Jewish people. In Christian interpretation, it was between God and the church. One of the things that the Zohar does with it, that has, has uh, sat so deeply with me, has been so resonant for me for over the years, has been the way in which they interpret the Song of Songs as the love between masculine and feminine letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So in other words, the love, the eros, that is being talked about in the poem is between the masculine aspect of divinity and the feminine aspect of divinity, the transcendent aspect and the imminent aspect. And it resides that the tension and the chase and the love and the pursuit exists between different groups of letters so that it's in our own linguistic activity, that which we can participate in, that we do on a daily basis, that's where the love is. So that it's not it's not exclusively something that goes on up in some you know upper reaches, and it's not something that goes on only within the depth Torah learning. It's something that goes on as we talk to each other, when we speak when we speak in holiness, and uh, when we're striving for depths uh, on the levels of uh, of basic communication. Beautiful, very inspiring. Very inspiring. Thank you so much, friends. Be sure to check out, in addition to that, um, to, to the Zohar mentioned already, mystical bodies, mystical meals, eating and embodiment in medieval Kabbalah and other works by Rabbi Dr. Joel Hecker. Thank you so much for your time.
and your work. It was a pleasure. Great to speak to you.